0: listening to Quintilian, the Latin Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sellers. Thomas Strunk is an Associate Professor of Classics and Director of the Classics and Philosophy Honors Bachelor of Arts Program at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. He received a BA in Classical Studies and History from Pennsylvania State University and an MA and PhD in Classical Studies from Loyola University, Chicago. His research interests include Tacitus, Cato the Younger, The Politics of the Late Roman Republic, and Bob Dylan and the Classical Tradition. His most recent book is On the Fall of the Roman Republic, Lessons for the American People, published by Anthem Press in 2022. I began our conversation by asking Tom how this book came about.
1: Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of things I write or work on, it partly comes from a desire for myself to find understanding or meaning in things. And in, I guess it was the summer of 2019 is when I kind of started first working on this. I, I just felt a lot of concern over my own republic you know, the United States and its politics. And so I was thinking about that quite a bit. And that just led me to, And you know, I teach Roman history. And so, and especially with a focus on the first centuries, you know, BC and AD. Uh, so I'm all, always thinking about, you know, the fall of the Republic and things like that. It's one of my favorite things to teach Um, in questions of tyranny and all these kind of things. And so, you know, very naturally, I started, you know, putting these two things together, you know, thinking about republics and how they thrive and how they decline. Um, And so it was really out of a concern for our own politics that I wanted to explore, you know, the nature of the fall of the Roman Republic in juxtaposition with our current politics. And I wanted to do it very closely, as opposed to abstractly or implicitly,
0: you know, yeah. We hear so much about the fall of the Roman Empire, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Why did you choose to focus on the fall of the Roman Republic and not the empire?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good
0: question because it's a clarifying question. Uh, You know, I think for a lot of
1: Western history, philosophers, historians, writers have been very concerned about the fall of the Roman Republic. You know, how did this form of government that you know, was Republican, Democratic in nature in some way that existed for about 500 years, go away and transform, right? So Rome didn't fall as a civilization, it just radically transformed its politics and then survived for quite a long time as well. Um, And so that was the part that I felt was most relevant to our, you know, current situation, simply that we live in a republic and, you know, I wanted to look at how this republic fell. And You know, for me, one of the primary, I always tell my students this, that, you know, why are we studying Roman history, for example? Um, It's because of the changes that it goes through over time that I believe is so instructive, you know, whether it's from a monarchy to a republic, from a republic to an empire or a principate, however you want to call it, uh, that those changes are really what has engaged, you know, people over the centuries uh, that can be instructive to us,
0: the word empire sounds so grand, so magisterial. Uh In the book, you make the argument that really the empire was a period of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the high school Latin teachers, high school history teachers especially, get things wrong by not emphasizing the authoritarian aspects of that period of Roman history enough?
1: Mm. Well, you know, part of it has to do with our... You know, a limitation of vocabulary. You know, we use the term empire to, you know, the Roman Republic had an empire, you know, refers to, you know, geographic space. Uh, But then we also use that term to describe, you know, a form of government. And so there's there's that difficulty of vocabulary that exists in English. Um, So that's partly what we're wrestling with. I don't know, I mean, I'd be hesitant to charge anyone with making mistakes or things like that. I think it's a matter of trying to tease out nuance is so much of what we do, uh, especially with our students, our high school students. Uh, So I think, I do think at times we tend to glamorize and this kind of shows my, I guess, my Republican leanings for Rome, uh, to glamorize figures like Augustus, even Caesar, and maybe some others, you know we tend to do a good job of vilifying the Neros and you know Caligulas, I suppose. but right. you know I think when we think about Augustus we always need to remember that there's and and he was very competent you know if you're running for election, maybe I'd vote for him. but uh, you know we need to remember that there's always that threat of force back there, you know and he does very good at kind of keeping that in the background once he's emperor uh, and that's one reason he's appealing to us but I think that's something that's worth trying to, you know, teach our
0: students. Definitely. In terms of pinning down a date for the end of the Republic, this is a very subjective thing you talk about in the book. I, I tell my students normally, well, some historians would pick the year 31, the Battle of Actium, because when Antony loses, the Republic essentially is over. Other historians would point to 27 when Octavian receives the title Augustus. In the book, I think you argue for an earlier date. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I would say probably the best, if I, and I think all of those dates are legitimate to right. kind of go through and discuss and argue about. Uh, for me, I would say forty-two is you know Philippi, the Battle of Philippi, is basically the end of the Republic. Um, and by that point, you know the Republic is behaving in very unrepublican ways. You know, we've had a dictator for life appointed and they've been assassinated and all sorts of things have been happening. Um, but that was the last, if, if the Roman Republic was going to continue in something resembling the form it had for the previous centuries, that was the moment that it turned on. And when Brutus and Cassius lose that battle, you know, in my opinion, there's no going back, you know, to that, that tradition. Uh, so that's why I choose 42. Um, you know, in 48, Marsalis is the other date that some were right. hit. You know, there's still so many people, I would say, fighting to maintain. And even Julius Caesar's intentions in 48 aren't completely clear. Uh, you know, maybe if things had gone differently, maybe would have gone back to Rome and ruled a different way and not been assassinated. Who knows? Um, but at that point, there's too many fighting to continue the Republic that I would say that that's the moment everything hinges on. So 42 for me is really the the pivot there.
0: Okay. If you could pin the blame for the end of the Roman Republic on any one single figure in Roman history, who would that be? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's tough, you know, and I'll give you an answer in a second. But I really do want to say that, you know, it's such a, you know, Rome is a complex place. And the forces that are working to, that are putting pressure on the system Especially by the late Republic, you know there are any number of them, and a lot of them are systemic rather than individual. Uh, I think if I had to pick an individual, it would be Caesar. You know, maybe that's an obvious or you know a clear one, but Caesar was very charismatic, very intelligent, uh, in a way he was a good politician, had the potential to be a very good leader politically, um, and what that entails though is that he had responsibility you know and he had the power to make some decisions that maybe others didn't and I feel like at times he makes the wrong decisions sure you know uh and is too ambitious and and really if I had to pinpoint what is the crisis that brings it on it's kind of the ambitions of people like Caesar and Crassus uh that that really bring it ultimately to its end. But before that, there's a whole slew of individuals and forces that, you know, bring us to that point.
0: Let me ask you a a hypothetical about Caesar, the Ides of March, 44 BC. He was preparing for a campaign in Parthia, correct? Yep. And I, I often tell my students, you know, I, I'm not sure that he would have come back from that yeah I mean, so so what are your thoughts? I mean, if he had if they had a if they had not gone through with the assassination, if they had allowed him to go to Parthia and he had not come back, he died in the process. Yeah. do you think that the Republic could have survived or were there so many problems at that point that it wouldn't have mattered?
1: Hmm. yeah, so a couple of interesting points so that's I'm glad you brought that that up. I would say one thing maybe before um, I respond to your exact question, and that is, I wish that the Romans in 50 had said, okay, we've got Caesar. He's got all these soldiers. What are we going to do with them? Right. Let's send him to Parthia. You know, it would have solved, it would have, I think, met a lot of people's demands, Caesar's <laughs> and others, but they didn't do that. Uh, and Lucan kind of references that, that, hey, we have this enemy on the frontier that, you know, should have been dealt with, that we should have been fighting, you know, to get back the standards from Crassus' defeat. Uh but to your question specifically, I think what it it still would have been, you know, in a bad spot, it still would have been in a bad spot, the Republic, and what it would have needed is kind of someone charismatic like Caesar, but who had maybe rather than say their own ambitions, the ambitions of the Republic. Augustus is kind of like this person, I think for some people they view Augustus this way that, you know, Rome is mass war after war, after war. And Augustus comes in and stabilizes it. And he right. does do that a lot. I mean, I want to give him some credit, but who then relinquishes that power more than Augustus does, you know? So I'm thinking of earlier figures, you know, like Cincinnatus or Camillus, you know, kind of people who are viewed by Romans as like second founders after Romulus. Right, right. And Augustus tried to paint himself in that picture, but this the kind of arrangement he set up uh, didn't allow for things to go back the way they were before, you know. And then he's followed by people like Caligula.
0: I asked you about pinning the blame of the end of the Republic on any one person. Let's let me kind of ask you the opposite question in terms of yeah. of the the salvation or the attempted salvation of the Republic. I suppose Cicero is the one who often receives credit or at least he gives himself credit being being Cicero for trying harder than anyone else to save the Republic. Uh, Do you think that's fair? Are there other maybe overlooked figures from the late Republic who deserve more credit than Cicero for trying to save the Republic?
1: Yeah, I think Cicero does deserve some credit. Uh, And if I had to pick someone, maybe it would be him. Uh, You know, he seemed to have, you know, a bit of a combination of having principles and also being willing to compromise, which I think is often what's needed in these moments when everyone else is becoming very polarized, you know? So I do, uh, admire him a bit for that. And we tend to think of his willing to compromise as being wishy-washy or what have you, or Mm. he's just praising himself, uh, for his abilities. Uh, So I guess I would probably have to put him in that position, but I would be Mm -hmm. reluctant because at times he too gets caught. He too gets caught. He gets caught up in his own uh, ambitions of how he wants to be remembered and various programs that he's advocated for and all of that. The one figure that I think deserves more attention is Cato the Younger. Uh, I admire Cato more than I do Cicero. Uh, I think Cato's flaws are that times he is too impractical and rigid, which is his reputation. I feel that we stereotype him a little too much in that regard. And a lot of that fall, I think, resides with Cicero. Um, But Cato the Younger at times, you know, this is, I was thinking about this before I came on here. We tend to view him in an odd way. You know, he's often portrayed as this old grouchy man who's overly philosophical And I feel that overly philosophic nature is due to Cicero's portrayal of him in a number of important works. Hmm. And we forget that he's often the youngest guy in the room. You know, when we think about who are these important figures at the end of the Republic, Crassus, Caesar, Pompey, Cicero, whoever else, Cato. Cato is the youngest of them all. And when he was 33, as Tribune of the Plebs, he put through, you know, a grain distribution. And Fred Drogula, in his biography of Cato, which is an excellent book, uh, talks about how that might have been the most important grain distribution uh, that was made in Rome, Mm -hmm. right? We tend to associate with the Gracchi, with Claudius, with these tribunes who, you know, are these radicals, Uh, but we don't associate Cato with that act. And, you know, if we kind of thought of him a little bit differently for doing things like that, we thought about him maybe being a little bit, uh, as someone who's maybe, I don't know if idealist is the right word to describe him, but someone who is young and principled and kind of has views of their society that they're trying to achieve, uh, I think we would have a different view of him. So I would have to say, reluctantly, ultimately, Cicero is the answer to your question, but the person who deserves, I think, more attention on their role is Cato. And once the Civil War began, right, once Caesar crosses the Rubicon, before Caesar crosses the Rubicon, Cato is, you know, adamantly opposing him every way. Once he crosses the Rubicon, Cato actually becomes in favor of peace. Uh, He was trying to call Caesar's bluff, I think, before he crossed the Rubicon and realized it was no bluff. Uh, And after that, he calls for peace. He never engages in any battles. He's very distant from the fighting and doesn't want to seem to get involved in it. And so I
0: think reevaluating him would be rewarding. You're listening to Quintillion, the Latin Teacher Podcast. Quintillion is supported by a Bridge Initiative grant from the Committee for the Promotion of Latin and Greek, a division of the Classical Association of the Middle West and South. More information about these grants is available at CAMWIS.org. That's C-A-M-W-S dot O-R-G. If you're enjoying Quintillion, please give us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast distribution platform. So going back to the book, uh, every chapter you have a lesson, as the subtitle of the book suggests, you have a lesson for the American people with a parallel to, to the end of the Roman Republic. In chapter one, you begin with a lesson called Anacyclosis. Uh, I know the Greek rhetorical terms can make people a bit nervous, perhaps. I want to reassure everyone who hasn't read the book that it's a very, very accessible book. But let's begin there. So, what does that term mean, anacyclosis? Yeah, I mean, it just means kind
1: of like a cycle, you know, which is kind of bound up in the, the word itself. So, it's as regards to politics, though, it's the idea that political forms, governments change, that none of them last you know, indefinitely. Uh, and so Polybius is typically the most commonly referred to person as, you know, sort of thinking through this. Uh, and he's analyzing the Roman Republic when he talks about this. He writes his history because he's so struck by how quickly the Romans have grown uh, as an empire in the Mediterranean. And so He has this passage, though, that looks at how governments change. You know, they go from monarchy to republic to tyranny or what have you. Um, And for an American context, I think what's important about that is we so often take our form of government for granted that we have a republic, we've got a constitution, and that the constitution and our laws are what, you know, kind of keep us in this balance. And I guess I would say two things. One is that you know, we shouldn't think of ourselves as exceptional, that history has shown that this does seem to happen, right? That no empire, no civilization, that no form of government, particularly form of government goes on indefinitely. Uh, At some point they tend to come to an end, they transform, however we want to describe it. Uh, So we're not, it's not somehow mandated that we have this Republic uh, forever. Uh, and that we need to therefore protect it. We need to think about what makes it healthy, what makes it unhealthy. Um, And so that's, I think where it comes into play and that ultimately it's things like civic virtue and solidarity and our love for one another as citizens more than a constitution that's gonna kind of keep it in place.
0: Okay, another lesson for the American people, chapter three, a revered tradition of liberty can be exploited by authoritarians. So explain that one.
1: Yeah, so Tacitus in his histories uh, has this phrase that, you know, no one has sought uh, power and domination and, you know, ultimately tyranny and things like that without employing the rhetoric of liberty, right? Uh, and why, why wouldn't they, right? I mean, who's going to, especially if you're in a republic, uh, why would you pursue someone who is saying, you know, I wish to put you in servitude, right? Everyone is going to say, in a society that believes in freedom, and the Romans did, they had a very robust idea of it, of liberty. And so do we, we all value it. Um, so therefore we need to kind of, put our political rhetoric in the context of freedom, right? Uh, and so I think we need to be aware that the rhetoric is kind of come wrapped that way. And that if we're simply listening to whoever's calling us uh, to freedom, that we need to kind of question, you know, what are their motives? Uh, what is behind that rhetoric? Uh, And all politicians use it, left, right, everywhere in between. Uh, And so I almost would say, well, okay, that's nice. But then what else are they kind of promising us? Um, Because freedom, liberty can be exploited uh, is, I think, the, the main point that I'm trying to make with that chapter.
0: Lesson from Chapter 10. Elections only work when everyone is willing to lose. So the main example that you give in the book, I believe, is the Catiline conspiracy.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, which you know we need to remember that that kind of unfolds after Cataline loses the election, right? That he runs unsuccessfully several times for council, uh, and his you know his failures kind of lead him to this desperate position. Um, and Cataline's a, a complex figure as well, and I think he's a product of some of the forces that are at work. Um, but really, that conspiracy to overthrow the government comes out of. Uh, his unwillingness to say, okay, I lost and I'm going to maybe run again or simply fade away or or whatever he should do at that point. Um, And in American context, clearly, you know, if you look at the last couple of elections, there's been lots of challenges uh, to the results. Um, And I don't want to say that elections should never be challenged, that people have legal rights to, you know, when it's legal to do recounts and all of these things, uh, that's appropriate. Um, but we need to go into an election, uh, with all those involved, recognizing that like, okay, I might lose this. And then the other person will be the one that's in office and that there should be almost a, uh, an inclination more towards forbearance rather than fighting for a different outcome, right? and I think of Al Gore in that context quite a bit, that he could have done a lot more to contest the election uh, in 2000 and really said, no, I'm not going to do this. And I'm, you know, for the sake of the Republic. Uh, I don't know if you use those words exactly, but uh, I'm going to kind of relent. Uh, Whereas now we see politicians unwilling to do that, right? And we end up with things like January 6th where we have people storming the Capitol and disrupting the processes that are part of our constitution. Uh, We even saw it with the election in 2022 where various people were unwilling to abide by the results, even though people from different parties and so forth are saying, look, these results seem to be valid. And- things
0: like that. So to bring up the uh the obvious elephant in the room uh Donald Trump in the book you you seem reluctant to compare him to any one single figure in Roman yeah. Republican history so yeah. um but, but I'll ask you the same question if if you had to make a choice what would it be?
1: Yeah, I think that's really difficult and I am reluctant because while I've written this book that's kind of juxtaposo- juxtapo- juxtaposing roman and american politics right i don't want to simply say that these are one-to-one relationships sure. you know i want us to be able to say there's okay these things are maybe kind of alike but there's some nuance to them and they're different contexts ultimately um, and so you know i don't want to compare him to a figure like julius caesar because trump does not have the military capabilities he does not have the literary capabilities the rhetorical capabilities of caesar in my opinion um He doesn't have, you know, same with Sulla, you know, who marches on Rome. And so I kind of make a bit of a comparison between Sulla marching on Rome with the, you know, uh, events at the Capitol on January 6th. But again, he doesn't have that military background. Um, I guess I would I don't know if Catiline is the best, but I would say the scale. Of what Trump tried to do in twenty twenty by contesting the election, okay, It's somewhat analogous to the scale of the Catalanarian conspiracy. It was easily, ultimately, it was the Catalanarian conspiracy was put down somewhat easily. Um, you know, there weren't large armies fighting for years and years. Right, uh, I guess I would say something like that. Okay, Catalan.
0: Okay, for the benefit of those out in podcast land, can you describe the the cover of the book? Because uh, this is a picture that you took yourself, I believe, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. so yeah, what- so it's a photograph. So I live in Cincinnati, uh, named kind of indirectly from Cincinnatus, the sure. Roman dictator. Uh, and the cover of the book is a photograph I took of a statue that we have in a park down by the river in, in on the Ohio river here in Cincinnati. And it's an image of him, you know, kind of dressed uh, in his tunic. And he's got one hand, his left hand on a plow behind him. And in his right hand, he's got the fasces that he's kind of handing back. Right. Um, and Cincinnati is, is an old figure, easily romanticized even by the Romans and he's most remembered for this act. We know other things about him that are maybe more or less flattering, but uh, what the Romans revered him for and why Cincinnati has set up the statue is that act of saying, okay, I was called by my country to, to handle a crisis, to get involved, to serve my country. I've done that. And now I'm going into retirement and others will lead the way. Uh, and I feel that that's a very Republican impulse, right? Both to serve our country when it's needed, whether that's, you know, in any capacity, uh, whether that's entering politics, the service, military service, or volunteer in any number of ways, right? That service is a very Republican notion. Right. Um, and so I think that's important. And equally important is the idea of giving that up, that there are others, you know, by nature, right, if we're gonna have kind of a, a Republican or Democratic, uh, both form of government and spirit to our politics, that we need to be willing to have others step forward. And that requires us stepping back as well. Uh, and that's what Cincinnati does there when he could have clung on to power. He had a legal right to do that. He right. didn't have to give up power when he did, he could have held it a little bit longer. Um, And rather than doing that for his own ambitions, he surrendered it. And I think that's a a important model uh, of what we need right now.
0: I would agree with that, but it seems to me that we have so few people in American politics who are willing to follow that example. We have so many political figures on both sides of the political aisle who have just been in positions of influence and power for such a long time. Yeah. Clarence Thomas, Nancy Pelosi, yep. Mitch McConnell, yep. Joe Biden, certainly now Donald Trump, of course, likes to make fun of Biden's age. Yeah. Never mind that Trump is almost as old yeah. and right. has certainly been a, if not a politician per se, a an influential public figure for almost as long as as Joe Biden. Yeah. Dianne Feinstein. There's some very legitimate questions about her ability to serve right now. So what do you make of all that related to Mattis?
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, there's kind of, uh, I think one thing that's admirable about his retirement is that he could have clung on for the power of it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's that aspect of it. And then there's the idea that he could have clung on to it simply because while he was in place and I'm here and i as good of a person to do this as anybody, why don't I just stay on? Um, And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Uh, You know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, clearly there are other Democrats who could, you know, step into that role as speaker. Uh, And she did, I think, you know, Trying, you know, thinking of it very objectively, I think she did a very fine job as speaker, right? That, you know, she challenged Bush and Trump and, you know, got important pieces of legislation accomplished and all those things. Um, But if the idea is that I'm the only one who can do this, I need to do this, uh, whether it's her or, like you said, Supreme Court justices Mm -hmm. or even presidents, uh, it doesn't uh, inspire leadership and it doesn't inspire it doesn't inspire a multiplicity of voices uh and opportunities for other leaders to come forward Uh, and i do think that's something that's kind of paralyzing our politics a little bit right now that you know all societies need to kind of change and adapt and so forth and i think we need that a little bit and we have folks who are kind of saying i'm the only one who can do this even though there are clearly other people who have those abilities
0: Okay, let's change gears now. Another one of your research interests, in addition to Roman Republican politics, is Bob Dylan and the classical tradition. And I wanna ask you in particular about an article you published back in 2009 called Achilles in the Alleyway, Bob Dylan and Classical Poetry and Myth. Bob Dylan, of course, a high school Latin student, member of the high school Latin club, Hibbing High School, Hibbing, Minnesota, back in the 1950s and he's been incorporating classical allusions into his music now for this remarkable six decade run that he's has and continues to have in American music. There have been allegations of plagiarism against Dylan, especially the past 20 or so years now that we can search online so easily. And, and this sort of prompted you to write the article. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that is right. And this, you know, was written, uh, 2000 and, Eight is when I was working on it and when I 2007-2008 were when some of those things were being alleged about him um, and I guess you know knowing Dylan and who I adore his music I adore uh, and the full process and all of that as well as teaching classics I felt ah boy I feel like something's really missing from this understanding from this discussion on whether or not Dylan is plagiarizing or not, you know, stealing lyrics from poets and, and things of that nature, um, and so a number of things uh, prompted me. And I wanted, I do want to say that this was at a time when I was teaching high school. I was teaching a lot of Horace and Catullus and Virgil, and that that article at, at the same time I was listening to a lot of Bob Dylan. Uh, and that article really came out of the classroom. You know, so much of what I have published, I consider fortunate that it's come out of a classroom environment. Great. I, I've been teaching. And so I guess I just want to say that as an encouragement to, to those in the classroom uh, that what we're doing there, you know, we, it can find uh, life outside the classroom. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but yeah, I think that plagiarism is one of these things that, uh, I don't know, maybe there are different that there's one that there's nuance to it, uh, and that we tend to approach approach artists in their work the way that we approve that we approach, say, a high school student or an undergraduate writing a three page response paper you know uh we want to say well they just kind of cut and pasted it from the internet and that's what you know bob dylan did when he took these lines from right. this poet particularly henry timrod a <laughs> poet writing
0: around the time of the civil war um and it, a jet ja- in a japanese gangster novel as well <laughs> for yes, love and theft yeah yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly all sorts of things and i guess what i want to say is not that dylan's unaware of these uh and what have you it's that you know either uh you know, some people say, "Well, it's the full process," which is the idea that art kind of belongs to a community, and that when you know you take from that and you give back to it, uh, and so that when you're you're borrowing things, uh, it's not so much a plagiarism as simply you're working with that tradition. And we see that in popular music, you know, other forms of popular music with sampling other songs and, and things like that. You know, you think of you know a band like Public Enemy. You know what would they have been without, say, James Brown samples and and a whole host of others? Uh, To me, it really ups the artistry. Uh, But you know, kind of this charge of plagiarism, I think, is a way to reduce the artistry and isn't quite understanding how artists of all kinds, uh, you know, are influenced, are working in that tradition and want to make allusions to those traditions. I mean, think about how satisfying it is as a reader when you realize. Uh, Or a listener, when you realize, like, oh, this poet is working in kind of conjunction with this other writer. And nowhere, you know, to me as a classicist is that alive than with say Virgil and his Aeneid with Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad. Uh, which, you know, part of the fun of reading that with students who are familiar with the Odyssey and the Iliad is saying, oh yeah, you know, this lines up with this here. And And then really saying, like, what are the differences? How is it reworked, you know? And what's the meaning that Virgil or whoever is going with there? And when we reduce that simply to plagiarism, we're getting rid of, one, the learning of the artist, the tradition that they're uh, pointing back to, but also the new directions that they're taking it to, you know? So what's it mean that Bob Dylan, who studied Latin in high school, is incorporating this into his tradition? Uh, and to what he wants to put out there. Uh, And, you know, just going with the charge of plagiarism prevents us from asking that question and pondering it. Right.
0: Okay. So in the article, you go through some specific examples of connections between Dylan songs and classical literature. Let's look at a couple of examples here. Um, I'll read, uh, I'll name the song. I'll read some lyrics. I promise not to sing lest i alienate all of my quintillion listeners i I won't sing either (laughs) okay uh and then you can comment on the classical parallels so from the freewheeling bob dylan 1963 don't think twice it's all right it ain't no use to sit and wonder why babe it don't matter anyhow and it ain't no use to sit and wonder why babe if you don't know by now when your rooster crows at the break of dawn look out your window and i'll be gone you're the reason I'm traveling on don't think twice it's all right. so Tom, the classical connection you see there is what?
1: Yeah so I when I hear that song, I think of Catullus 8, uh, which is the poem where he's trying to you know encourage himself to move on you know from this failed love affair um, with lesbia and when I read that poem, it's less about her than it is about him. You know, right. Catullus trying to say, "I'm over this. I need to move on." And yet, the more you read that poem, like, <laughs> boy, this guy doesn't seem like he's over it. Uh, and and that's where I think the the beauty of that poem comes from, because maybe that's something a lot of us can relate to. And I think Dylan's doing something similar. You know, if you just looked at that title, you know, maybe you could take it as a very harsh saying hey don't think about it you know i'm moving on you know i'm forgetting about you but that's you know as you listen more to the song uh you kind of get a sense that he too uh is moving away from this affair very reluctantly you know he wishes that there's something he could do or say to get her to change you know uh their mind and and so i feel like there's both catullus and dylan are in that situation where they're trying to move on They really wish they didn't have to um but they're gonna you know write this poem or song to to help them do that
0: okay another one from love and theft 2001 lonesome day blues this one is maybe a more explicit reference i'm going to spare the defeated i'm going to speak to the crowd i'm going to spare the defeated boys i'm going to speak to the crowd i'm going to teach peace to the conquered i'm going to tame the proud
1: Yeah, if I, you know, if ever I was able to have a conversation with Bob Dylan, I think this is the song I would really, it's not necessarily my favorite Dylan song, Um, by any means, there's so many good ones, but this passage, I'm just so intrigued by how it came to be, you know, Uh, because I think of the songs in poetry, most of it's Augustine or late Republican poetry, Catullus, Scorsese, and Virgil. Uh, this is the one that is really almost an exact translation uh, in some form. Uh, and I don't know how we could read it as anything other than, uh, you know, a bit of a riff on Aeneid uh, book six. But, uh, because of the way that it lines up with that, you know, remember Roman, you'll rule nations. Uh, These are your arts to teach uh, peace, to spare the defeated, to tame the proud. And that's essentially, you know, depending on what use translation you're using, those are are maybe the words, some of the same words that Dylan uses. And so we could, you know, hunt down translations and see who is it that he's, you know, copying here something like that. Um, But I think we could also say, well, you know, it seems like maybe Dylan read the Aeneid, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe whether it's in high school or at some other point, uh, we know he's a well-read fellow and it is kind of um, using that. And I think in the song, um, you know, when we read that in- passage in the Aeneid very positively, as if it's part of the Augustine program that we're going to, you know, uh, teach peace and abide by laws and things of that nature and the dylan song it comes off a little rougher you know uh the idea of taming the proud and you know people being defeated and things like this. And part of it has to do with his voice and the music and kind of those extra layers that you get in the song that maybe is missing from the poetry. Uh, and so I think when you hear it in the Dylan, if you know the Virgil reference, it's kind of like, oh, well, should we be reading the Virgil a little differently, you know, uh, or maybe not, but it at least brings those two things into conversation with one another, which I think is the value of, of seeing these illusions.
0: Definitely. 1965, bringing it all back home. Mr. Tambourine Man, a song that's been keeping Dylanologists busy for 50 plus <laughs> years now. Yeah. Take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship. My senses have been stripped. My hands can't feel to grip. My toes too numb to step. Wait only for my boot heels to be wandering. I'm ready to go anywhere I'm ready for it to fade into my own parade. Cast your dancing spell my way. I promise to go under it. So this song, I, I guess when it first came out and maybe ever since has been sort of attacked by some people as a glorification of drug use. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think we could find maybe those references in there if we want to. Uh, Dylan says that it has nothing to do with the drugs, right. which is almost too strong of a statement from him. He's very, he's much more, Elusive when people ask him about these things. So I almost don't trust him on that response because it's right. too straightforward. <laughs> right. uh, but at the same time, I think there's something to it. Uh, and I guess what I would say is that it's more than that. If there are references to drugs there, that's fine. But it's much more than that. And it's kind of the Dionysiac forces at work. Uh, and, and I think we often view Dionysus too simplistically. Oh, he's the god of wine or something like that is what we often teach our students. Yeah. Uh, but really, he's like the god of release, of liberation, of kind of freedom from constraint. And we see, you know, maybe positive forms of that, the idea of, you know, uh, dancing beneath the diamond sky with no fences, no limitations facing us, let me forget about uh, today until tomorrow, that sounds very nice. Um, But then, you know, we also, if we read Euripides' Bacchae, um, we see where that can lead if we're always living in that space, you know, that there's ultimately a destructive uh, force that maybe uh, gets involved there but it also seems that's necessary to live in that space at least part of the time. And, and I think that's what Dylan and Dionysus are, are kind of getting at a little bit. Um, and that song is so evocative of the, the imagery that it has and, and the, the lyrics to, I think, reduce it simply to, you know, smoking a joint or something like that uh, is, is to me uh, a disservice to the poetry of the song. and. Its connections to these Dionysiac
0: themes. Sure. Um, another one you reference in the title of the article: "Temporary Like Achilles, Blonde on Blonde," nineteen sixty-six. Not exactly a well-known song from Dylan's catalog. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I looked this up, and he's performed this a grand total of zero times in concert over the years. <laughs> You know, compare that to like a Rolling Stone. He's played 2000 plus times in public, right? Achilles is in your alleyway. He don't want me here. He does brag. He's pointing to the sky and he's hungry like a man in drag. How come you get someone like him to be your guard? You know, I want your love and honey, but you're so hard. So in your mind, what are the classical parallels here?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know what he's getting at with these lines, I will say. And I I think that Blonde on Blonde as an album is so rewarding because of, um, I don't know, it's either abstract or elusive imagery that it uses, unlike, you know, some of his earlier albums, which are... You know, even if Mr. Tambourine Man uses, you know, highly poetic imagery and things like that, you can kind of follow it, you know, as to maybe what it's getting at a little bit. With Blonde on Blonde, it's it's much more, you know, the it's more about the impressions that a lot of the songs give than kind of being able to follow them in kind of a narrative or... Uh, straightforward sense. I I guess this is what I want to say. And I think this is maybe one of those songs and this is one of those passages. I think I I cite it here just because um, it's kind of an easy reference or a casual reference, I guess, uh, by Dylan that to some sense, I think speaks to his familiarity now, sometimes when we use casual references to, to the classics, it's because, well, I've heard about someone named Achilles, and so I'm just going to throw him into my song. But often what that means is that one feels comfortable using these allusions. Uh, so, a period, you know, I'll just use a quick analogy here. The period I'm studying, I'm working on a book on Cato, and I'm looking a lot at, you know, kind of revolutionary America. Uh, and there are references to classics just all over the place. And it's not just Jefferson and Adams making them. I mean, they're showing up in what we would think of as, you know, very common places, newspapers, conversations, letters to the editors by all sorts of people. And it it kind of just reflects how steep they were in the classics. Sure. uh, That to us makes it hard to even imagine. Um, And so I think, you know, the same is somewhat, you know, I guess I want to suggest that the same is somewhat true here with Dylan in this passage. Uh, And I don't know, what's it mean to have Achilles in your alleyway? Uh, You know, I think it's like, well, you probably don't want to walk down that alleyway uh, (laughs) because Achilles is one bad dude. Um, And, you know, and so I think it's just suggestive of, you know, he's, I think, you know, speaking to a lover here uh, that, you know, how, part of this person is resisting him, you know, that there's kind of this like figurative Achilles at the gate, you know, that you're going to have to face.
0: uh, The, uh, the, the, uh, the paraclauseth iron. I use that when I teach the Amores, the song in class. Oh yeah. So I I could go on for about Dylan for hours. um, But we have other things to talk about. Um, So we, we've already talked about the statue of Cincinnatus in Cincinnati you have another classically themed statue as well. You have you have a, a replica of the Capitoline She-Wolf. Mm-hmm. And in 2020, one of your city councilmen tweeted: quote, statues from the monster that was Benito Mussolini don't belong in our parks. Museums maybe, but not Cincinnati Parks. I'm drafting legislation tomorrow to have the statue permanently removed. And then you responded with an op-ed in the Cincinnati Inquirer about this to, to place things in proper context. So tell yeah. us about that.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, and this statue, its history only gets more and more interesting. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's a very lovely park, as the name Eden Park suggests, uh, that overlooks the Ohio River. Uh, and there's one little place where there's a wonderful overlook and a couple other statues as well. And yeah, there's Romulus and Remus as little babies there, you know, underneath the wolf. And, uh, if you're a classicist and you're familiar with that, it's like, wow, you know, what's this doing here? Right. Um, and well, what it's doing here is that back in the thirties, uh, it was given to us by the Italians, uh, and you know, when Mussolini was in power and it was given to us in year 10. Which is a very odd way of dating things, Uh, (laughs) and you know what that means is year ten of Mussolini's power. Uh, You know it has a very dictatorial kind of uh, language about it, especially the dating. Um, But it wasn't given to us by Mussolini himself. Uh, It was given to us by the mayor of Rome at the time. Uh, And well, I guess if you're going to be mayor of Rome at that time, you probably need to be buddies with Mussolini. But he actually. the mayor whose name I'm not going to be able to recall off the top of my head right now, uh, you know, went on to kind of get involved in some anti-fascist activities later on. Uh, but so I'd make a couple of points. One, it wasn't directly given to the city by Mussolini. Um, and it was given to us presumably because we chose the name Cincinnati as the name of the city. So we kind of had this uh, Roman connection. Um, but whoever it was given it, given to us by, uh, if they were thinking anything along fascist lines, I would say that it's kind of a misreading on their part of what that statue stands for. Now, clearly the statue stands for Rome and Italy in general, you know, the way that like an American Eagle stands for the United States in general. Um, But if we think about that story of Romulus and Remus, uh, you know, they go on to become the future of Rome, right? You know, Romulus in particular, founder of Rome, and here they are, here the twins are, they've been cast out. Uh, the rightful king has been driven by driven from the kingdom, uh, and they've been abandoned to die, essentially, right? And here they are these infants, kind of the lowest point possible in the story. And yet they're saved. And through that, you know, we get Rome and we get the rightful king restored to the throne. Uh, and so for me, you know what I think that story embodies ultimately, are forms of, of justice, of forms of good government, forms of caring for one another, uh, the hope that right will prevail. Uh, you know, and I, I think the story, well, I'll just say that uh, it, it embodies those things, which I, I'm going to say, you know, are the kind of the exact opposites of what fascism stands for. Yeah. Um, and So, when I see that statue in Eden Park and the statue of Cincinnati, it's it's kind of the idea that we here in Cincinnati want to embody some of those principles of serving the common good, of seeking justice, of helping those in need uh, that build up, you know, that can build up our republic and our civic life. Um, I'll add that this statue was vandalized. Right. Uh, About a year ago, I'm forgetting the exact date, uh, when more than vandalized, it was simply stripped away. They cut the wolf off at the at the paws, basically, and took the wolf away, left the paws and Romulus and Remus sitting there, which that became very, you know, you went up there and saw it while Romulus and Remus were still there. And you have these two babies kind of crying out for sustenance. (laughs) Uh, I was like, wow, I mean, what sign is this uh, sending? Uh, they eventually took down Romulus and Remus because it was too unbearable to look at. Okay. Uh, we don't know the motivations of the people who took it. it the leads have all gone dry. Okay. Uh, people presume that it had less to do with anti-fascism and more about getting it and melting it down and reusing it for, for other things. Hmm. Um, they're, they are working on replacing the statue. Uh, apparently, it's already been forged. Uh, funds were raised Uh, it's already been forged in italy they were able to find the original cast uh, or mold i guess uh, of it and so it's on its way back Mm -hmm, hoping to have it back in place uh, in the autumn at the latest so i'm really glad that they're doing that I, i think it's important you know i think what's circling around all of this are interrogating right? Our public art that we have up around us. And that's going on all over the place around the country and even beyond. Uh, And so I think it's worthwhile interrogating, uh, why is this statue given to us from fascist Italy sitting here? Uh, And in some ways, I think the vandals did us a service in a way. Like this statue is now something that, it's no longer Mussolini's statue, if it ever was. It's now a statue that's being... That has been paid for by don- you know, donations, by individuals, uh, has been forged by kind of a relationship between Italy and, and the United States, Cincinnati. And so it has the potential to stand for something completely new sure. uh, at the same time as standing for something completely old. Uh, and so I'm glad that, that it'll be back.
0: The city councilman who brought this issue up, Chris Seelbach is his name. Yeah. So what was his motivation? What prompted this? If the statue had been in this park going back to the time of Mussolini, I mean, why yeah. in January of 2020 does he bring this up? Do you know? Well, I
1: think at the time, you know, I mean, this was a time when we especially, you know, it was after Charlottesville okay. when there were the the protests, you know, to the you know, when there was a desire to bring down the statue of, of Lee, uh and obviously resistance to that that culminated to, you know, the the protest in Charlottesville in what was it, 2017. Um and I think since then we've been thinking a lot about what statues do we leave up, what is their meaning. Uh you know, the city of Columbus here in Ohio, for example, just took down a large statue of Christopher Columbus. Right. right. Um, and you know, they're reasons why one might do that. Uh, you also think a city named Columbus would maybe keep such a statue up or at least try to get at the nuances or the complexities of it. Uh, so I think it's in that spirit that really came out of those years that Sealbach, you know, kind of said, you know, and I so I understand his impulse, you know, I don't like fascists at all myself. Okay. Uh, so I understand his impulse. And I certainly understand the impulse to take down some of these other statues uh, that we've put up that you know stand for white supremacy and things like this um but i think in this case it was misplaced uh, and i think we do need to you know why why have we been having these conversations what what's the importance of them you know when you put up i mean these statues aren't cheap they are they take uh resources they take time they you know And they come to symbolize us in some way or we want them to symbolize us in some way, whether it's simply a statue put up because it's beautiful uh, or to honor some uh, virtue or uh, something we want to aspire to. You know, it's worth kind of saying, what are we putting into this? What does it mean for us? Uh, And then once it's up, you know, to say, does it still do that? Uh, and if so, how, if not, what are maybe some of the difficulties or complexities around it? Uh, and so I think it's the ongoing conversation is a worthwhile one to have. And I think that's where he was coming from. So I don't, you know, I don't, uh, have particular animus, against him for, for bringing that, raising the conversation, because we should realize like, yeah, it says the year 10 on it. That's a little weird. You know problematic. Uh, we don't right. count that way. You know, we don't say it's the, what, year two of Biden, you know, because we don't believe <laughs> in kings and dictators and such, you know. Right. So, anyhow.
0: Okay. So I know you have an interesting personal background and personal story, which I'd like to hear now in the time that we have left. So where did you grow up, Tom? And how did you first develop an interest in classics?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, an area of Pennsylvania that's part of Appalachia uh, in the the mountains there uh, along the Delaware River. Uh, So just a stone's throw away from New Jersey. Um, And kind of how that led me to classics is, you know, through history. When I was six, uh, my parents took me to Gettysburg. And I was even at that young age so struck by that place. Uh, And, you know, if one hasn't been there, I highly encourage you to, you know, you or your listeners to go because of what it has meant, you know, for our country and because of the way that that place has remembered what happened there. Um, And I was so struck by that at that young age, I knew I wanted to somehow be a part of that. Uh, And once I got a little bit older, not a whole lot, you know, knew I wanted to study history and You know, and I saw, well, what do you do if you're a historian while you become a teacher? And that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I I knew I wanted to teach history by the time I was a teenager. Um, And then when I got off to college, you know, and this is often what happens. I had a professor who it was, you know, Western Civ 101. So we're looking at ancient history. Uh, It was a history class. uh, And I had never really studied the Greeks and the Romans. And he was just such a fascinating. His name was Daniel Frankfurter, uh, one of my great professors that I had at Penn State. he was just so engaging on these ancient, you know, peoples, the Romans and the Greeks that I started then, you know, I was a history major. I started taking Roman history classes. One thing led to another. And I think it was even him who was kind of like, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to learn your Latin. So I came to the languages very late. It wasn't until I was a junior uh, that I really started studying Latin and Greek and really had to hustle to, to catch up. Yeah. Um, and so, by doing that, I unexpectedly fell in love with the languages, um, and ultimately graduated from Penn State with a double major in history and classics. With classics being my ma- my primary major, actually, okay. um, and then went on to graduate school in classics. You know, and I'm one of the, I. I'm in a classics program. I'm an associate professor of classics. My graduate degrees in classics, but you know depending on what I'm doing any given day, I might consider myself an ancient historian, you know, first and foremost, when I applied to graduate schools, I applied to programs that, you know, focus on ancient history. Uh, when I applied for jobs, I did the same thing. And so it's kind of, you know, I do the stuff that I'm doing with Cato and the Roman Republic, and then I also do the stuff like I've done on Dylan. Uh, and when I do the history stuff i feel like an ancient historian when i do the more literary stuff i feel more like a classicist i guess so it's kind of that's the the short of it i guess
0: okay when you look back at your career what are you most proud of Hmm. yeah
1: um that's a good question um i don't know if i can You know, going back and rereading, it's always an odd thing when you go back and read your own writing. uh, And just as often as not, you know, it makes you cringe a little bit. Uh, I went back and, you know, read the Dylan article, which the Dylan article was actually the first article I published as a professor. Oh, right. Uh, And I was happy with how it read. You know, there are maybe some things I would change, a few things I would edit, of course. Um, But I, I am proud that as a beginning academic, that wasn't the first thing that maybe I should have published in a way. You know, I, we had people come in at one point and do a review of our program uh, a decade or so ago, and they asked me about that and they said, "Are you worried about that counting?" You know, for tenure because I wasn't tenured yet, and and I really hadn't thought about it. And so in a way, I was kind of like, "Oh, well, it's something I just wanted to write that I felt it needed to be written." And I felt that way about so much of what I've, I've written, uh, whether it's the Dylan article or the, the book on the fall of the Roman Republic, it kind of came out of a, a need to explore these things. So I am proud of that. I'm also just very proud of the relationships I've formed with my students. Like I said, so much of my publications have come out of classes I've taught and the conversations I've had with the students there uh, have just been wonderful. Uh, you know, the material we teach, sometimes it might be the same you know, from year to year, but it's always the students who change. Um, And that really is where the reward is to me, is engaging with these people who are curious, who are looking to, you know, build their lives and, you know, expand their understanding of the world that um, is so exciting. And so I think of the students I've taught and the conversations we've had as something I'm very proud of as well. It's, It's something that, you know, only I and the students really see, you know, we have a privileged uh, place there. Um, But I think that's a big part of, as teachers of who we
0: are and who we become. Going forward, sure. Going forward, what changes would you like to see in the field of classics?
1: Oh, boy. Well, um, so let me see if I can get around your question this way. A lot of what I work on my writing um, is an attempt to bring together the ancient world and the modern world. And I worry that we've become too we've become too scientific or too objective. You know those are loaded words, but I don't know what else to use, and how we have approached. I think this is changing, but I wish it had changed sooner, and I think it needs to change more rapidly. You know, if we look back over, say, the classical tradition, for centuries, the value of these works were incredibly immediate to people, right? Uh, You know, so when Machiavelli does his commentary on the first five books of Livy, you know, the discourses, he's not doing that in some scientific way of like, let me hold Livy very distant from me and... You know, he's very much thinking like, I'm living in a republic, or I'm trying to, or I want to. How do I uh, apply this? You know, what is its practical application? And I feel like those have become dirty words for us as classicists, Um, even as, you know, people in the humanities that, you know, we don't want to be accused of somehow um, just using these for our own purposes or something like that. But I think that fear has led us to keep them at arm's length. And for students, well, then we teach them to, you know, they at least sense it from us that we should keep these at arm's length, that they are something that existed millennia ago, but don't really have anything to do besides me getting through this class and getting a grade and moving all in my life to something more useful, you know, like accounting or medicine or something. Right. Uh, and as useful as those fields are, uh, I think that there's a lot to be learned, especially around things like leadership, uh, about political discourse, about beauty. Uh, that could be so useful to us. And I don't want to say that, I don't want to present this as an unproblematic tradition. There certainly are problems, or at least, you know, things that we should critique and be concerned about with the tradition. We don't want to simply accept it wholesale, but that's part of getting close to it and saying, what is it about this that, you know, thrills me? And what is it that, you know, doesn't throw me, that kind of maybe makes me very upset that I can have, that I have the freedom to get upset about even, as opposed to simply, you know, from the student's perspective, uh, repeating, you know, platitudes that my professor might want to hear so that I get a good grade. So I want to see uh, a classicism. I, what I call it is a philology of liberation. And I've written a little bit uh, about that. Uh, And that is the idea that, Our philology, that our close study of these texts, of these time periods, should be something that can liberate us on an individual level, right? So that when a student is sitting in the classroom or on their own reading these works, that it should have the power and the space to speak to them individually, should have the power to speak to us collectively, uh, rather than something that's, uh, you know, a relic that's a museum that's a that's like a fossil you know it's a living
0: tradition um that's kind of what i would like us to see to see us do more of fantastic all right time for our closing segment now sex codissimares six of your most beloved things as a classicist number 1 tom what is your favorite latin textbook
1: yeah uh so i you know, this is a very fraught conversation amongst classicists. Uh, <laughs> I know it can be. I, you know, uh, maybe I'm, you know, I, I believe that a good teacher can teach with any textbook. Uh, so I tend not to be overly, I'll teach with Wheelock and I'll teach with Cambridge and whatever. Uh, my favorite, the one new one that I, I've used a bit that I like is Subarani. Okay. Um just because it, one, it looks interesting, you know, there are pictures in it and it's in color and it has, you know, kind of a lively feel to it. Uh, and it also offers a multicultural perspective that I think has been missing in a lot of our textbook textbooks um, for too long. Uh, and so that's the one that I've used a little bit that, that I, you know, am that appeals me right now
0: feels to me right now. Number two, your favorite place to visit in Italy.
1: Yeah, man, Uh, that's a (laughs) that's a big one. So I'm going to choose Rome. And what I would say is that when I'm there, a good trip to Rome involves many things, of course, Uh, you know, going to Rome is like a pilgrimage in so many ways. And, you know, I love going to the Forum and all those places. But for me, uh, a good trip to Rome means that I have gone to the Spanish stairs and particularly, this is less of a classical reference, I'll get there, uh, is going to the Keats and Shelley house, the the house where they lived. Um, And to get to the classical reference, if you go out to where they're buried at the Protestant cemetery uh, is the Pyramid of Castius, you know, a little pyramid in in the city of Rome uh, from the Augustan era, uh, that's right next to the cemetery, and if you go there, it's and you go into the cemetery if you go when it's open. Uh, you know, you're surrounded by quiet and cats and Keats <laughs> uh, and Shelley and their graves and kind of the the other famous people that are buried in that cemetery. Um, and I'm a, a fan of romantic poetry, uh, which is why I'm kind of drawn to them. And and I guess by saying that, what draws me, you know, what is so appealing about Rome is those layers of history you know that you just can't help but run into while you're there that's so fascinating
0: and the spanish steps of course referenced by dylan in when i paint my masterpiece right okay (laughs) exactly it all comes full circle it does (laughs) all right number three your favorite work of classical literature or your favorite classical author
1: yeah, well, I wrote my dissertation, my first book on Tacitus, and so I guess I need to go with Tacitus and the Annales, okay. which I think are just such a fine study of political thought uh, and, uh, and of writing. You know, Tacitus is such a, a stylist. He's not easy. He's difficult. But, very difficult. Yeah, but <laughs> very rewarding. Uh, on the Greek side, I would say, you know, just the, kind of my pleasure reading, if one can call it that, is Plato. Uh, and especially the symposium, I really love as a work.
0: Number four, your favorite movie or television program about the classical world? Yeah,
1: the HBO Rome series I thought was just fantastic and so engaging, and and for a classicist, thought-provoking in so many ways. Uh, I really love that. But my only problem uh, I have with it is their portrayal of Cato they make him into this grouchy old man who's always walking around saying, ah, Caesar is a tyrant <laughs> and, and
0: not doing much else.
1: So with that one caveat, uh, I really enjoyed the Rome series.
0: Okay. Number five, your favorite character in classical mythology.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go with Prometheus. Uh, okay. You know, Aeschylus is Prometheus bound. I just like how he he's tied to that rock there. There's not much he can do. And he just kind of continues to rail against Zeus and, you know, and Zeus kind of comes off as a tyrant in that, that play uh, in particular. And so I just, I just appreciate kind of his, you know, stubborn resistance uh, to the tyranny of Zeus in that play.
0: (laughs) Okay. Finally, Tom, number six, what is your favorite Latin expression?
1: Yeah, I think I have to go with Terence. you know, and this is maybe a common one, you know, homo uh, sum, humani nihil ame, alienum, puto, you know, the I am human, right. nothing human is alien to me. Um, I, I think that there are a number of ways to read that. And we're, we often take it out of context. I take it out of the context of the play that it's written in. I don't frequently read Terrence. I don't uh, teach him or write about Terrence. Uh, but that that those lines, taken as they are, I think just really expresses the potential that classics has to be liberating, to reach a broad audience of people, to get beyond uh, kind of its elitist past and i think cause all of us to engage more fully in our humanity and the different expressions different beautiful expressions of that from not just classical antiquity but you know from around the world from different time periods and to embrace it
0: a great note to end on uh tom thank you so much for coming on the quintillion podcast congratulations on the lessons for the american People book. And good luck with your next project. And do you want to say a few words about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks. I alluded to it earlier that I'm working on uh, Cato a little bit. So there's a wonderful biography written by Fred Drogula that looked at the life of Cato. And uh, what I'm working on are kind of the afterlives of Cato uh, because Cato has such a rich, you know, life after he dies uh, in so many ways. And so what my... Current research, it's a, a book that I have under contract with the University of Michigan uh, that looks at him, you know, from the time of his death and the earliest interpreters of his life, people like Cicero, Caesar, Sallust. Uh, and then going from there, kind of across the centuries, uh, looking at how writers under the early republic view him, uh, St. Augustine, early Christian writers, Dante, uh, and there's kind of three things, three stories that typically are told about Cato. One is that he's a philosopher, so a stoic philosopher. Uh, another is that he was a traitor. You know, that's kind of Caesar's take on him, that, yeah. you know, he betrayed uh, me and what Rome really stood for. And then there's Cato the Republican that we maybe see in Salis, And that really uh, gets picked up, you know, with figures like Dante and Joseph Addison, who writes a tragedy on Cato. Uh in the the 18th century that becomes very influential for the United States. In the 18th century, uh, Cato was, Cato and Joseph Addison's play on Cato uh, were just everywhere and inspired a lot of different people, obviously the the revolutionary generation. uh, So for example, this play on Cato was performed at Valley Forge, right, Mm -hmm. in 1778. Uh, But we also see, references uh, to Cato, you know, picked up by people like Frederick Douglass and others in the abolition movement. We also see references to Cato on Confederate memorials. So there's just a long life that he has that uh, is really enriching to explore. And so that's kind of what I, I'm doing with this work. Hopefully, I don't know when exactly it'll be out, it might be not be till 2025 or so, um, but that's what I'm up to right now.
0: Sounds fascinating. You'll have to come back on the podcast. We can talk about Cato more. And as long as Dylan remains creative and enigmatic, we can talk more about Dylan as well. (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot.